Well, it's been quite a ride going through the book of Romans. Uh, I hope and I pray that uh, you have taken time between the Sundays to go over what we've preached, uh, perhaps reviewing all the way back from the beginning of chapter 1. We're halfway through chapter 8 now, and we've got about eight chapters to go. Uh, John Piper stacks superlative on top of superlative when he tries to describe what the book of Romans is. And he says something like this. This is my paraphrase. He said different things at different times. He says something like this. The book of Romans is perhaps the greatest, not perhaps, but actually the greatest letter that has ever been written in the history of the universe. Or something like that. And he says it is just an amazing book. And it is. This is a book, is a letter that was written. It is probably the greatest written, or as John Piper corrected himself, not probably is the greatest letter that was ever written because it gives us more fully than any other book in the Bible the fullness of the doctrines of salvation and the gospel. But the book of Romans will make us work. Can't just sit here and hope that you'll understand it. There's this book will challenge us intellectually. It will challenge us emotionally. It's going to challenge and shake us to the core of who we are. It doesn't allow us to just sit as happy, shiny Christians. It compels us to ask some hard questions about our lives. And I know that many of us and. Glenn mentioned this this morning already, and I mentioned it last week. Many of us have been asking the question, well, if this is true, I don't know if I'm saved. If, if this is true, I don't know that that's me. I don't know that I believe that. I don't know if I have experienced that. And so last week we asked the question, how can we know that we are saved? We're going to ask the same question today. And this is a good question to ask. You should not be able to make it through your Christian life without asking yourself this question. You have to periodically ask yourself the question, how do I know? How do I know that what the Bible says is true? How do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? How do I know that the death of a man 2,000 years ago in a faraway place saves me forever? How do I know that he came back to life? And how do I know that because he did that, something has happened to me? How do I know? How can I be sure? It's a good question. Now, I want all of us to be able to come to a place and say, I just know. I know this to be true. I know this to be the Word of God. I know this to be the promise of God. I know this that has been applied to my life. I know that I am right with God, and I know that I will be raised from the dead, and I will live forever. I, I want that assurance for all of us. So I am praying for you. I'm praying that you will have that assurance of faith, that, that you will come to a place in your journey, and you'll say, I just know. But more than that, I want you to be sure and I want you to be right. There's nothing more tragic than counterfeit conversions. There's no use us going through the motions only to meet God and for Jesus Christ to say, away from me, I never knew you. And Jesus warns us that he's going to say that to many. 
So let's be serious about this question. How can we know that we are saved? What you are not going to get from me last week or this week or ever is any sort of fluffy, you, well, if you feel good about yourself, then you're saved. I, I, I don't want to give you therapy to get you through a difficult life. As God's ambassador, I want to give you the truth and pray that the Holy Spirit would apply it to your life and give you an assurance that you are his and he is yours. Last week we answered this question, how can we know that we are saved? This way. We said, although there is a very real and an unending struggle in this life between the heart and the flesh, or the flesh and the spirit, we, if we are saved, we desire... And we succeed incrementally over time at overcoming the flesh. The flesh is that part of you that still desires sin. So there's a struggle between the part of you that loves righteousness, wants to walk in righteousness, and the part of you that still loves sin and, and desires sin. It lingers. The old man hangs around. And there's going to be that struggle. Nevertheless, if you're saved, you will desire to overcome that impulse to sin, and you will very slowly but very consistently over time see progress. You'll see fruit in your life. In this sense, then, there are some objective markers to prove our salvation. Jesus said it this way, good trees or healthy trees bear good fruit, and bad trees or diseased trees bear bad fruit. How do you know if you're saved? Well, last week, if we could summarize it, is look at the fruit of your life. A and other people in your life can look at the fruit of your life and help you to discern if there is some fruitfulness of repentance. Do we see the, the fruitfulness of a Christian life? This week, we're going to ask the same question again. How can we know that we're saved? And we're going to see a very different way of answering this question, whereas there's some objectivity. It's not perfect, but we can try to discern from outward behavior what's going on on the inside. Today, it's mostly subjective. It's what, what are you feeling on the inside? Now, I know feelings can be deceptive, so this can't be the only way you discern if you're saved, but there must be, at some level, an internal subjective understanding and acceptance of your own salvation. That's what we're going to look at today. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? Today's preaching text is verses 14 through 17. I'm going to read, just to give us a little context, from verse 12. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. This is the Word of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to have assurance of the salvation that you have so freely given to us in Christ. I pray that you would help me to preach this text. I ask that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives and minister to us by it. Thank you that It is by your spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. It's by your spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. It's by your spirit that we know that we are children and co-heirs with Christ. And it's by your spirit that we're willing to suffer. Oh, God, help us. Help us to go deeper with you. I also pray that if there are any here who are caught in a counterfeit conversion, they're not actually saved, but they have been deluded into thinking they are saved. I pray that you would give them uh, this insight, that you would convict them of their sin and their lostness, and that they, this very day, would cry out for salvation, and you would unite them with Christ and give them new birth so that they may, too, have assurance. I pray that you might even do that through this one sermon, that someone would come to faith and by the end of the sermon have full assurance of the salvation that has been just so freshly granted to them. This is impossible for me or for us, but for you all things are possible. Glorify yourself, save people, and build up this church. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Anyone want to uh, just give me an overview of the book of Romans? Some of you should be able to do this by now. How about this? I won't put anyone on the spot, but just try to guess, anticipate this macro overview of the book of Romans as we're going through. If I said, so Peter, you be slow on the PowerPoint. Two words that would summarize verses 1 to 3, or chapters 1 to 3 of the book of Romans. Uh, Let's just shout it out. We can do that. Yeah, wrath and propitiation. God is wrathful against sin because we we worship the creation rather than the creator. And propitiation. He sent his uh, his son, our Lord Jesus, to receive that wrath so that if we are in Christ, we are protected from the wrath of God. Chapters 4 and 5. What word summarizes those chapters? Yeah, good, I hear it all across. Justification, to be, de- to be declared righteous before God. This is a forensic or a legal standing before God. Nothing changes in your nature. It's just God says, you believe in the things that I have promised you, therefore I count you to be righteous, or I consider you to be righteous. I declare you to be righteous. And so all of our sin debt gets removed, and then he adds to our account all of the righteousness of Christ in standing. That is, our position before the throne of God. Chapter 6 and 7, right, sanctification. 
Sanctification is different than justification. If justification is just about our, our position before God, sanctification is about our transformation. We die with Christ and we're raised with Christ. We're made new. Our nature is changed. So we actually have a new heart. We've been made obedient from the heart. Chapter 8. I heard it. One more. Glorification, right. That's when sanctification is brought to its uh, culmination. That's when sanctification is, is finished its work and we are like Christ, body and soul. That's chapter 8. We're in the middle of chapter 8 right now. Chapters 9 through 11, election, right. Why Israel and not some other nation? Why did God choose Israel and not Assyria? Israel, not Babylon. Israel, not Egypt. Israel, not Moab talk about that and why are some people saved and other people are not so the book of Romans doesn't get any easier but these are cherished doctrines and then chapters 12 through 16 right living yeah if you believe chapters 1 through 11 this is how you should live your life the, the way we live our life is rooted in the things that we believe. So chapters 1 through 11, that's orthodoxy, the things that you believe, and chapters 12 through 16, what's the ortho word that we put to that? Orthopraxy. You are becoming experts in the macro structure of the book of Romans. Now today's text can be divided into, into four points, one point per verse. So in chapter 8, verse 14, how can we know if we are saved? Well, saved people are led by the Spirit of God. That's chapter 14, or sorry, chapter 8, verse 14. Verse 15, saved people cry out to God as Abba, Father. So if you're saved, the Holy Spirit will draw you to call out and to cry out to God as Abba, Father. Now, you may not use the word Abba, but it's the, the orientation of the heart that's important. We'll look at that. Verse 16, saved people just know that they are saved. This is one of those, if this was the only way that you know that you're saved, then that's not enough. But it's, it's nice if you compound all of the ways that you know you're saved. If you're saved, you just, you just know that you're saved. I just know it. We'll look a little bit more at that. And in verse 17, saved people are willing to suffer for Christ. As I said, what unites these four points is that they're all very subjective in nature. Uh, so in some ways, it's not as easy to measure. There's no metric that I can give you to, to just say absolutely you can measure this and know this. So you need to be prayerful. And as I'm preaching, be prayerful and ask yourself the question, is this me? Oh, God, help me to see. Is this me? If it's not me, Holy Spirit, would you reveal that this is not me, that I don't have this? Or if you feel that you don't have it, say, I don't know that I have this, but... God, maybe I do, and I've just missed it or overlooked it. So you need to be praying. Interact with the Holy Spirit while the preaching is going on because what we're trying to discern this morning is are we saved people? Are you saved? Let's take a look. Point number one, verse 14. Saved people are led by the Spirit of God. Uh, I better do a little bit of context, verses 12 and 13, then we'll go right into that point. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if you live by the Spirit, or if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you remember last week we talked about two kinds of people, unsaved people and saved people. Unsaved people are of the flesh. Their heart is, is in total agreement with their flesh. There's no distinction. And so if they live according to the flesh, they will die. They're not saved. And then there are those who are led by the Spirit. They have the indwelling Spirit. They have the new heart. And those people, if they live from the Spirit or in accordance with the Spirit, they will live. So Paul writes here, we are debtors. We are not in debt to sin anymore if we are saved, right? Unsaved people have a debt. Their debt is to sin. Our debt is not to sin. That debt has been paid off. But we are still debtors. Who are we in debt to? To Christ who paid off our debt. We owe Him a righteous life. So if, if you belong to Jesus, if you know that you have a debt to Jesus, and this is not to earn your salvation, it's just you know that he's paid it all. If somebody pays off your, all of your debts and then gives you an infinite amount of capital, you just owe them your very lives. Not to earn what they've already given you, but in response to what they've given you. So in response to what Jesus has done for us, we owe him a righteous life. And how do we give him that righteous life? By the Spirit of God, we put to death the deeds of the body. That is, we, we continually work with the Holy Spirit and we say, help us to overcome our inclination to sin. Help us to overcome our desire to sin. Help us to stop the, the patterns and, and the habits that cause us to sin because deep down we don't want to do that anymore. Now we get to verse 14. Save people who are praying this way have this mindset, are led by the Spirit of God. Verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It's a super clear verse. How do you know if you're saved? Well, if you're saved, you're a son of God. And that's a positional title. It's not about men. It's a positional title of inheritance. So this is gender inclusive. Men and women, you're a son of God meaning you receive an inheritance, which we're going to get to in the last verse, if you're led by the Spirit. You're saved if you are led by the Spirit. So if you're not saved, you're not led by the Spirit. If you are saved, then you are led by the Spirit. The hard part about this is we all still struggle with sin. Yet you can struggle with sin and still be led by the Spirit. The difference between last week and this week is this. Last week, people who are of the flesh and of the Spirit will prove their salvation by the way they live their lives. That is, they still sin, they still struggle with sin, but as they live their lives, there's fruitfulness. And you see more and more fruitfulness. That's not exactly what Paul is saying this week. He's saying this week, people who are of the flesh and of the Spirit, that is those who are saved, will prove their salvation by being led by the Spirit. And this is highly subjective. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, in verse 13, it says you will be putting to death the deeds of the body, that is the sin in your life, but what's the initial leadership that you're yielding to? 
Well, this is very personal. It's very internal. And we discover it by really seriously taking an inventory of our desires and our motives. So every one of us has a desire to sin. Let's just get that out there. So if you have a desire to sin, it doesn't mean you can't be led by the Spirit. My question is, do you have any other desires? Do you ever desire not to sin? Do you hate your sin? It's very difficult for anyone but yourself to discern whether or not you're being led by the Spirit. Let me define it this way. To be led by the Spirit is to love what God loves. To hate what God hates. To desire what God desires. And then this is really the important part where all of that comes together and to submit oneself voluntarily to the revealed will of God. To be led by the Spirit is to love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to desire what God desires, and to say, I want to be a living witness of what God has written down in the Bible, to put the Bible over top of you as your authority and to say, this is my desire, to walk according to His will as revealed in the Word of God. So then the question, are you saved? Are you being led by the Spirit? Do you love what God loves? Do you know God... The Father loves the Son. Do you love Jesus? Do you love what Jesus has done for you? Is he precious to you? God loves his word. Do you love the word? Now I know that some people are readers and some people are not readers. If you ever want to see a, a funny sight, just go with me to the gym and watch me try to lift weights. I hate to lift weights and I'm terrible at it. And for some people, that's their experience with reading. I, I can read fairly easily. So it's, I, I can read uh, uh, fiction or I could read the Bible. I love to read. So it's easy for me to love to read the Bible. But the question is not, do I love to read the Bible? The question is, do I love the Bible? So if you're not a reader, well, we live in a great age where you can get someone to read the Bible to you. There's all kinds of audio apps. But the question is not do you love to read the Bible, but do you even love the Bible? If you don't love the Bible, if you don't get a thrill out of reading the Bible, I mean, or having the Bible read to you, or sitting under the preaching of God's Word, can you say that you love what God loves? There are so many Christians in North America who just can't wait for the preaching to be done so that the rest of their Sunday can unfold. Is that God's approach to the preaching of his word? John says in 1 John that God loves saved people. So if you don't love your brothers and sisters in the faith, then you're not saved. So there are extroverts and introverts. That's understandable. Some people are more prickly than others. But do you love the saints? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? 
you know the sin that we desire? God hates it. How much does God hate it? What, how, what would God have to do to communicate how much he hates your sin and my sin? Well, he crucified Jesus for it. What does God think of your sin and my sin? Well, the crucifixion is what he thinks of it. He poured out all of his wrath on, on, on his perfect son because he was angry and he hated our sin. Now, he wasn't the kind of angry that we are. He had a very controlled burn in his anger. Nevertheless, he hates sin and he was angry at it and he poured out his wrath. Do we hate our own sin the way God hates it? even while we desire it? Is there that struggle in you? Do we hate the sin in the world? Do you desire what God desires? He wants the message of the gospel to go forth to the ends of the earth. Do we? Do you submit yourself voluntarily to the revealed will of God? Or do you say, what can I get away with? How much do I have to do to be an acceptable Christian? That and no more. Or you say, I just, I want to submit myself wholly to what I know God wants from me. If you've said yes to all of these, then you are being led by the Spirit. You're a son or a daughter of God. If you've said no to any of these, then you might not be saved or you might be very weak in your faith. Those who are led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will lead you to love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to desire what God desires, and the Holy Spirit will lead you to love God's Word and to voluntarily yield your life to it. Second point, saved people instinctively cry out to God as Abba, Father. Take a look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again, sons there is for men and women. It's a positional title. You're a child of God. If you cry by the spirit, Abba, Father. Now, as I've said continually, the struggle between the flesh and the heart or the flesh and the spirit is a very real battle. Uh, we're not looking for perfection. Here. But, and I, I believe that Paul is really trying to help us in our struggle to discern are we being led by the Spirit of not or not? He says, You need not be afraid. That is, don't be afraid that you're not saved. I think, at least, is one very plausible uh, reading of that. You, you didn't receive a, a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Well, what would we fear? The wrath of God. Why would the wrath of God be coming for you if you're not saved? It, because these last chapters have been challenging. They said you've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You desire what God desires. You love what God loves. You hate what God hates. You submit yourself to God's will and his law. You say, well, I'm not sure if that's me. And he says, well, don't be afraid. You haven't been given a, slave, a, a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear as if, as if God is going to punish you over and over and over again. You're not going to be perfect. We can be unsure of our salvation. We might fall back into fear. I know many of you have. It's because sometimes it's very difficult to discern the difference subjectively between genuine salvation manifesting itself in our lives is it a real battle against the flesh or is it a heart that doesn't love God? It's very hard sometimes to, to tell. 
Well, how can we tell the difference? Paul gives us a really good way to tell the difference. He says, if we're saved, sometimes we'll cry like a baby for God as our Father. Sometimes you'll run out of words, you'll run out of theology, and you'll just cry like a baby for God. Now, it's not absolutely clear that what he's saying here is that you'll cry like a baby. I added the baby part because that's my experience. My experience is there are times when I, I come to the end of my theologizing, I come to the end of my analysis, and this usually happens if I'm woken up in the middle of the night, to be honest with you, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll have this panic or this anxiety that is over me or a fear that is over me. It could be all about all manner of things, some rational, some irrational. Sometimes it'll be uh, just deep, heavy doubts about the, the truthfulness of the word of God or the gospel or my salvation. It might be circumstantial in my life, but in those moments I have found that it is extremely helpful not to try to converse with God but to just cry out for him. Have you ever done that? I'm not talking about speaking in tongues. I'm talking about getting beyond language because this is where the baby part comes in for me. Babies don't have language. And let's be honest, we have language, but we don't have God's language. There are some things about God that are just too great, too marvelous, that we cannot even get close to articulating them with our minds or with our tongues, but we can cry out like a baby for God. And for me, sometimes I find, and it's usually not audible, but I, my spirit is just saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, God, God, God. And then I'll, I'll picture myself in, in the hands of God, and sometimes I'll then begin to picture that I'm surrounded by this inapproachable light, and I'll get rocked back to sleep. You ever done that? Try it if you've never done it. Next time you're having anxiety or panic, just stop trying to rationalize what's going on. Stop trying to talk yourself or to God and just become an infant in Christ and by the Holy Spirit cry out for God so are you saved have you ever come to the end of language and just cried out to God for me it's like a baby maybe for you it will be a very mature crying out to God If yes, then you're probably saved. Now, there's abuses to this kind of thing. We see the abuses in different kinds of tongues speaking that are not all real. But if you're having a genuine encounter with God by the Holy Spirit, it's good evidence that you're saved. If you've never experienced this, then you should try it next time that you feel that you're sinking if you just can't, you might not be saved. But if you've never done that, it doesn't mean you're not saved. These are just cum accumulative, right? The more of these that you've experienced, the more assurance you can have. Third way that we can know that we're saved, saved people just know that they are saved. This is really helpful, isn't it? Huh. 
Are you saved? Well, I don't know. Are you? Um, take a look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself, now that's interesting, himself, that's personal. The Spirit himself, that's a reflexive verb saying the, the personal presence of the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness with your own spirit that you are a child of God. So there's not much I have to say to this, except this. Have you ever had that crystal clear moment where you just know that you're saved? Somebody said that you had to prove it. You couldn't. But you've had that moment, hopefully many moments, hopefully prolonged moments, where you just, I just am. I just am a Christian. I don't know when I was saved. I don't know how I was saved. I don't have all of the theology in place. But I just know. And I, I know there was a change in my life. I know that, that I am led by the Spirit. Don't ask me to prove it. I'm not an apologist. I just am. That's the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And, and just to be clear, your actions might not have caught up to your nature. Yet you may not always act like a perfect saint. This is helpful too. How many of your children, especially, okay, let's start. How many of your toddlers, how many of your five-year-olds, how many of your nine-year-olds, how many of your 13-year-olds, how many of your 19-year-olds act like perfect children? Are they any less your children? And so let's say one of your children makes a grave error of judgment, makes a big mistake. Have they stopped to be your child? Now if we who are evil, I'll borrow from Jesus, understand that our children remain our children, and we love them unconditionally, even when they're not behaving well, how much more who God, will God, who is not evil but is perfect in every way, maintain his fatherhood over us even when we misbehave. The question is, are you or are you not his child? Children know who their parents are. And what I love about this is we're moving to adoption. We're not talking about biological children. Children know who their parents are. And we are adopted children. Adopted children know who their parents are. So are you saved? If you just know that you're saved, that's a strong evidence that you're saved. Now, it's not an ironclad evidence. There are many people who think they are saved and are not. Now, Jesus says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many great things in your name? And Jesus says, I will respond to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. So if this is your only uh, assessment tool, then it's incomplete. However, with everything else, it's a really helpful one and an important one. People who are saved just know that they are saved. It's a powerful assurance. Now let's say you're struggling with this. I don't know. I just don't feel saved. Again, I just want to say that doesn't mean you're not. There are a lot of children that need to be reassured by their parents that they are still their children. So you may be in that situation. Fourth, saved people are willing to suffer for Christ. 
This is where the rubber meets the road for us, I think. This is where it gets hard. This is where I am sincerely concerned for us at South Shore and for us in the church in Canada because I don't know how willing we are to suffer for Christ. But saved people will be willing to suffer for Christ. And you know what? I don't know how much I am willing to suffer for Christ because I've never been truly tested. So this is a hard one for us. But let's take a look at it. Verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now there's a provision here. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know what scares me about this verse? Paul seems to say that if you are a child, if you are an heir of God, then you will suffer. For Christ. It goes far beyond being willing to suffer. You will put yourself in situations where suffering is given. This is, this is what scares me about this verse. How many of us are putting ourselves in a position knowing that by doing that we will suffer? There's many different kinds of suffering. I'm not even going to try and unpack all the different ways that you could suffer. But, but in which ways are we willing to put ourselves in a situation for Christ's sake, knowing that it will bring suffering into our lives? We need to understand a little bit of what it means to be an heir. Paul introduces here the idea of an inheritance. If we are led by the Spirit of God, if at times we cry out to God like a baby... If we just plain field saved, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, this is amazing. And what does it mean? We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Well, let's start with the co-heirs with Christ. Christ is the natural-born child of God. This is a metaphor. He's eternally begotten. He never began his existence. But he's the, the, the natural heir. He... He is the heir to whom everything that God has to give ought to go. Now, we are adopted sons and daughters. So there's one heir, that is Christ, and now we become co-heirs with Christ. So what is it that God the Father gives to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Everything. Everything that God has to give. What is everything? Well, let's just start, this is for starters, Let's just start with the universe. God has exalted Christ above every rule and power and principality that is in existence in this universe and if there is anything beyond this universe, beyond. In, uh, in this universe and in heaven. He, he is at the climactic high point of authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Jesus talking about his inheritance, authority. Now, we become co-heirs with Christ. What does that mean? It's, it means that we will reign with Christ provided we suffer with Christ. It's the same thing in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 
So we will reign with Christ. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And we're told that we're going to be co-heirs. We will reign with him if we suffer with him. So we get exalted above every other creature that has been made. So the, the, the smallest in the kingdom, uh, the smallest of us, the, the, the least of us is greater than the greatest angel. That's just for starters. Then we're told that he gives us eternal life. And, and the life that is in the Son and in the Father and in the Spirit, we partake of that life intimately, so we get caught up, John talks about this in 1 John chapter 1, into the very fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that, have you ever wondered what it must have been like to be God before God said, let there be light? You will, and you are in part already. Because we get caught up into the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No angel gets invited into that intimacy. No other creature gets invited into that intimacy. But we, as co-heirs with Christ, get everything. And then Ephesians, I love this. I go back to this a lot, so you've heard this before. In Ephesians chapter 2, in the coming ages, plural, everything that God does will be to demonstrate to us the immeasurable richness of his grace toward us who believe. Ages, plural. How many ages? I don't know. Infinite. Ages. Whatever God does in the next age and the age after that and the age after that, we will always be at the top of the pile. We will always be co-regents with Christ. We will always be uh, partaking of the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And whatever God does, because God is a creative God and I don't think he's just going to coast for infinity, infinite amount of time, whatever God does, it's going to be uh, a way of him expressing his love to us. So if you're saved, that's your joy. That's your desire. That's your pleasure. Give me a fast boat that can compete with that. Give me a big house that can compete with that. Give me a political office in this world that can compete with that. Give me all the riches in the world that can compete with that. Give me the best uh, retirement that can compete with that. Nothing can compete with that. There's nothing that comes close to what God has given to us in Christ. So what are we so busy with? Going to the cottage or the trailer or getting busy at work or whatever it is cannot compete with what God promises to give us. So saved people will have a wide-angle lens on reality, knowing that we are to receive such a great inheritance, we're going to be willing to suffer in this life. I don't need it all now. I'm not going to trade my eternal inheritance for a little bit of sand, a little bit of gold, and a little bit of fun. Because at best, I've got 50 years left, maybe 60 if I'm really old. That'll take me to 100. I'm 40. 60 years of the best life that any human being has ever lived is nothing compared to an eternal, all the ages to come, God giving us everything that he has eternally given the Son. So what am I going to do with my life? 
what are you going to do with your life? Well, saved people will say, I want to lay it all out there for Christ. Enough with my secular career. I'm not against secular careers. But understand me, if that's your joy, if that's your heart, if that's your pursuit, if that's your everything, you've got a misplaced priority. We have to work. It's good to work. So we work for Christ. Are you, are you, honestly, are you doing that at, at your job? Are, is your job, do you go to your job to provide for your family, to give to the church, to send missionaries overseas, and to be a witness for Christ in the workplace? It, honestly, is that how you approach your job? Or is your identity wrapped up in your job? Because if your identity is wrapped up in your job, you've got misplaced priorities. So I'm not against careers. I want to be clear about that. I'm not against uh, good planning. So I'm not against retirement. But, but is, is your retirement what you're living for? There, there was a song, li- working for the weekend or living for the weekend. Like, are you living for the weekend? Are you living for your next holiday? Or... Your marriage. Are you living for your marriage? Uh, I'll give you a secret. Your husband or your wife will let you down if you're looking for your husband or your wife to provide for you what only God can give you. If if your heart, if your desire, if your treasure is this eternal inheritance to be a co-heir with Christ, then you can pour your life out for your spouse. You can suffer through your marriage for the sake of Christ. But if your marriage is where you're finding or trying to derive all of your fulfillment, all of your pleasure, I I don't know that you'll make it. Because you're married to a saint, hopefully, but a saint who's still wrapped up in flesh, And he or she will not satisfy. But we are, if we're saved, able to keep our suffering in perspective. Comfort. That is a big idol in our world. Riches, success, power, love, sex. These things cannot be our priority in life. Here's a hard one. Your children. Be a good father. Be a good mother. But you cannot be a good mother or a good father if your identity is wrapped up in your kids. Because you're going to require something from your kids that your kids can't give you. So if you truly want to be a good parent, seek the eternal inheritance that is yours in Christ and then suffer through your motherhood and suffer through your fatherhood, pouring out your life to give your kids the best possible chance to be co-heirs with Christ along with you. We can wait if we're saved. We can suffer knowing that God is going to unload an incalculable inheritance on us in the end. 
This is why I'm afraid for us. We are like the, the seed planted in the thorns and the cares and concerns of this world so easily choke off the growth. Have you ever seriously considered by yourself or with your family doing something radical? I'm going to use that word because we're going to get to it in a minute. For the sake of God and his kingdom. A total change in your life trajectory. You thought your life was going this way, but now that you see reality more clearly, you go to your wife, go to your husband, and you say, ah, what if we went this direction instead? Have you ever been there? Have you ever had that moment? And then your husband or your wife will say, yeah, but, but, but look what we'd have to give up. And think of the risk. Look what we won't have. Look at the pain. Look at the danger. Yeah. But save people. Not only will be willing, but they'll desire to make a good investment of their lives for the sake of the kingdom. They'll give up all this earthly stuff. And every one of us will have a different fork in the road. But every one of us should have a fork in the road. And some of them will be just very slight forks. And some of them will be radical departures from what we're do doing now. But something has to change once we come to Christ. And as we mature in Christ, and as you see what the gospel is and what the promises of the gospel are, and when you're testing your own election, you want to make your election sure, if you're not willing to give up earthly comforts for the sake of the kingdom of God, are you saved? I don't know. But I would be very concerned if I wasn't willing to make a change in my life, a costly change in my life for the sake of Christ. I want to read, this will wrap up our time. I want to read Mark chapter 10, verses 23 to 31. Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, Oh, how difficult it is and will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed? Old covenant perspective, God's blessing comes through material riches. It's not entirely true, but that's what they were thinking. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And he says that for anyone, not just the rich. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now I have heard this exegeted that the eye of the needle was a door and the camel, being a high animal, can't go through this little door. That might be true. Or it might be a camel going through the actual eye of a needle. The point is, it's impossible for the camel to get through the eye. So whether it's a needle or a door, 
The point is not how big is the eye of the needle. The point is the impossibility of the camel getting through. It's impossible. You can't do it. But it'll be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. Now, the, why, this, this should be scary for us because we're all wealthy. You might not feel wealthy, but we live like kings and queens. If you take a survey of the history of humanity. Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus lays down a challenge. It's really hard for rich people to get into the kingdom. Why? Because it's their riches that betray the fact that they're not actually saved. When push comes to shove, they choose material wealth, earthly comfort, 60 years over the eternal inheritance that comes with Christ. And if you choose that over the eternal inheritance, you're not saved. So then Peter says, well, we've, we have made a radical departure. I was a fisherman. Now I'm a disciple. I'm an itinerant preacher. I'm an itinerant exorcist. And I'll follow you to the end. And Jesus says, you've made the good choice. And you're going to have much more in this life, greater fulfillment in this life, and in the age to come, you will be co-heirs with me. So my challenge to you is, have you left anything for Christ? Anything at all. Because if you haven't, you're playing church and you're not saved. You don't need to move to Africa. You don't need to move to Asia or the Middle East or South America. You don't need to quit your job. You don't need to sell your house necessarily. On the other hand, God might ask you to do any one of those things. But have you left anything for Christ? If you've left a small thing, let's just start with that and build from there. You see, that's why we're reading the book Radical. The wrath of God is being poured out against North America, it's evident in our culture, but Peter says judgment begins at the household of God. So how many so-called Christians sitting in churches in our country and on this continent aren't even saved? You want to be sure of your salvation? You don't leave things to earn a place in the kingdom. You leave something because you desire it more than what this world has to offer you. How can we know that we're saved? Well, last week, objectively, good trees bear good fruit. 
this week subjectively, we just, we just know it. You might say to yourself, well, I am being led by the Spirit. There are times when I come to the end of language and theology and I just cry out to God. I know that God's telling me that I've saved. I, I've had that crystal clear moment. And I'm willing to suffer now for the sake of glory later. In fact, I've already left some things and I plan to leave some more things behind. Because I came into the world with nothing. I'm going to leave the world with nothing. And if I have food and clothing and a life invested in the kingdom of God, with that, I will be content. If you have those things, then you're a child of God. If you don't, cry out to God for salvation and be saved. Let's pray. Oh God, Abba, Father, I want to give assurance to this church, and yet every time I preach a message on assurance, it seems like more challenges. I trust your spirit is at work. I trust that uh, it is his good pleasure to challenge us to ask these hard questions and to buy the field with the buried treasure and to sell all that we have so that we have enough to buy that field. God help us. Grant assurance where assurance is there, but grant conviction where we need to be convicted. And for all of us, saved and unsaved, first bring us to, to saving faith and then take us deeper that we might suffer for the sake of the glory about to be revealed to us. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.